Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 66. Now, it's about World War I then, what was happening 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is April 6, 2018, and 101 years ago, on April 6, 1917, the United States declares war on Germany, which starts us on a path that will change our nation, our people, our industries, and our position in the world forever. The Senate passed the war resolution with only three Republicans and three Democrats opposed. The House voted 373-4 with 50 opposed. Jeanette Rankin, the first woman to serve in Congress and the lone female representative, voted against the resolution. The approved declaration of war was sent to President Wilson on April 6, 1917. At 1 p.m. that day, he signed, approved, 6 April 1917, Woodrow Wilson. On this one-year anniversary, Dr. Edward Lengel, Catherine Aiki and I sit down for our April 1918 preview roundtable. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog updates us on the German Spring Offensive. Mark Wilkins introduces us to World War I pilots and PTSD. Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff tells us about basketball in World War I. Catherine Aiki brings a story from the World War I commemoration in social media. Plus a lot more on World War I Centennial News, a weekly podcast brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, and the Star Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Several months ago, during a podcast editorial planning session for an upcoming month, it occurred to us that our planning roundtable might be something our audience would enjoy listening to. We tried it, you liked it, and now we do it. So here's the conversation Dr. Edward Langle, Catherine Aiki, and I had earlier this week. The question on the table was, so what are the big stories and themes in April 1918, in the war that changed the world? German forces are continuing their offensives on the Western Front, and the second part of their so-called Kaiserschlacht begins near the beginning of April. Operation Georgette, uh, also called the Battle of Lees up near Ypres in Flanders, hits the Belgian army and Portuguese troops. American troops are pulled in in the form of engineers as well as some air units. The broader portrait is that Generalissimo Ferdinand Foch, technically in charge of all the forces on the Western Front, is ramping up the pressure on Pershing to move as many forces to the Western Front as possible and to get them into action as quickly as possible. So we're moving closer and closer to actual combat on a large scale on the Western Front. And we have our first engagement on April 20th and 21st on a very large scale at a place called Siege Prey. Ed, last month, the fighting and the uh, spring offensive really started further south, right? That's right. The Germans are, again, not looking to capture Paris. They launched their first offensive on March 21st further south, 
they are launching this offensive in Flanders in early April. The goal of these offensives is to split the French and the British armies to force them to divert their reserves away from uh, the main point of the German offensive, which is intended to split those armies, drive to the Channel ports, and force the British to evacuate to Great Britain. So, Catherine, there's this whole thing going on now about stormtroop tactics. That That's a whole new methodology of fighting that you'd mentioned earlier starts to look like World War II. Yeah, actually, a lot of what's happening in the Kaiserslacht and continues to happen over the course of it looks increasingly like World War II tactics. The idea of the infiltrating concentrated force is not new for the Germans. When Germany was Prussia, they had a conception of this kind of fighting, but it really solidifies into stormtroop tactics, what's recognizable to us as those kinds of tactics in fact, in this push in Operation Georgette. What's a good definition for stormtroop tactics? A good definition for stormtroop tactics is quick movement by relatively small numbers of highly trained troops that are instructed to bypass enemy strong points and work their way in between and into the rear of those strong points and cut them off and to keep moving as quickly as possible. Now, of course, they don't have the armored forces that they would later have in World War II. In fact, the Germans are far, far behind in the development of tanks. But it's a very effective use of infantry, and it absolutely catches the British by surprise. Catherine, you mentioned something earlier to me when we were talking that during this period is the first tank-on-tank battle. Yeah, April 24th. Um, it's an unsuccessful German attack at Villers-Bretonneux near Amiens, and it is the first full-on tank-to-tank combat. That looks a lot like World War II, but like Ed said, German tanks, a lot of the German tanks, especially up till now, were captured British tanks that they slapped an Iron Cross on and fixed up and sent back out into battle. They, they really don't catch up on tank technology during this war. Going back a little bit about the Portuguese that we mentioned really quickly at the beginning, because I don't think we've mentioned Portugal yet at all during the podcast. And they they kind of don't get involved until pretty late in the game, if, if I'm correct, Ed. That's right. And Portugal is a historic British ally that they've traditionally had very strong connections. Of course, Spain is neutral throughout World War One, but uh, Portuguese troops are a presence on the Western Front. Yeah. And I would mention, too, as much as we're hyping the stormtroopers and they are pretty successful in moments, they actually suffer ridiculous casualties during this particular push. And Operation Georgette's called off before April ends, I think on the 28th or the 29th of April. Um, they, they fail to get as deep as they need to to cut off the French and British from the supply lines going through Calais, Dunkirk, and Boulogne. And they, they really don't seem to be quite as successful in this moment as they are in World War II when they have this full all-arms warfare support. 
That's a great point, Catherine. And one of the things that I wanted to point out, there's this mythology that somehow the British and the French never learned anything. And the Germans were the only ones to develop these innovative new tactics. In fact, the British and the French had learned quite a lot on their own by this point in 1918, both in how to attack and how to defend effectively. And it's partly because of the lessons that they've learned that they're able to inflict such heavy casualties on the Germans. And you had mentioned that the German intent was not to capture Paris, but they creep up close enough and then use big guns and start to shell Paris, right? The purpose here, again, is frankly, it's a form of uh, terrorism. It's simply to break down allied morale, break down French morale to create a feeling of panic in the capital city and throughout the rear areas that the Germans are about to take Paris. And to some degree, they're successful in creating that sense of panic. It was 380 millimeter gun barrel. Good Lord. How far could they shoot? The Paris gun was miles. How many? Let me look it up real quick. Uh, 81 miles, 130 kilometer effective firing range. Yeah. yeah. How do you even range when you're that far away? I guess it doesn't really matter all that much. All you want to do is be hitting Paris. Catherine, so General Haig does this backs to the wall speech in mid-April, right? What's that all about? Yeah, it's a uh, field marshal, Sir Douglas Haig. He's the commander-in-chief for the British armies in France, and he releases what he's, what's called the Special Order of the Day on April 11th. Um, it's famously known as the Backs to the Wall memo. It's a rousing speech in written form sent out to the British troops, um, and I can read a, a little bit of it if you want me to. Please. Many amongst us now are tired. To those, I would say that victory will belong to the side which holds out the longest. The French army is moving rapidly and in great force to our support. There is no other course open to us but to fight it out. Every position must be held to the last man. There must be no retirement. With our backs to the wall and believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight on to the end. The safety of our homes and the freedom of mankind alike depend upon the conduct of each one of us at this critical moment. It's very rousing. And the British have been prone to be fairly critical of Haig, after all, in the Battle of Third Ypres at the end of the summer of 1917, Haig pushed his forces into what was essentially a death trap and suffered terrible casualties. But his backs to the wall order has an electrifying effect throughout both the British and Dominion forces, even the Canadians and Australians. For them, it's, it's a real wake-up call for what's at stake. There's three big generals out there, right? There's Foch, there's Haig, and then there's our own. They're in competition in all sorts of interesting ways at this point, right? Because they're all in the battle. That's right. There's a great deal of tension. There has been tension between Foch and Haig for quite some time. Uh, in general, they work well together, but, but there is that longstanding Anglo-French enmity and tension. Pershing jumps into this whole equation and has at times an almost explosive relationship with Foch. There's one episode where Pershing said he came close to punching Foch in the face. <laughs> uh, with Haig, it's, it's a little bit more of simple awkwardness. Haig writes privately uh, of his 
to some degree disdain for Pershing and the American forces, but on the surface, he's all diplomacy. Foch can be diplomatic, but he can also be volatile. So there's a lot of energy uh, exchanged among these three men. They're almost perfect caricatures of the cultures they're representing in your description just now. I love it. <laughs> yeah, they are. That's right. It's pretty funny. Now, what about the war in the sky? What's going on with that? There are four American squadrons that participate in the British defensive up in Flanders. For the most part, they're acting under overall British direction. The Americans are just beginning to develop their concept of the use of air power. It's still really in its infancy at this point. And Billy Mitchell in particular is beginning to develop his own ideas. There's a great deal of pressure on both the Americans as well as the British and the French uh, air powers to launch assaults inside Germany to wreak revenge for what the Germans have done in, in Paris and London. Yeah, and I know from the, the British perspective, the Royal Flying Corps becomes the Royal Air Force in April, 1918. Um, it sort of amalgamates, changes its name, a little shift in organization. And they're very busy with Operation Georgette in particular. They drop a lot of bombs. They, they lose a lot, of, a lot of pilots and a lot of observers flying those bombing missions. And in 1918, it's a close-run thing, but eventually toward the spring and the summer, the Germans have lost many of their greatest aces, including the Red Baron, who's lost in 1918. And there's a process of wearing down that's taking place at this point. Did the Allies ever actually use the same kind of, you know, hitting the civilian population tactics during World War One? Did the Allies do the same thing? I don't think they go into Germany in particular. I don't know, Ed. Do you do you know? No, there there are some small scale bombing raids against uh, German railway stations and the like uh, mm -hmm. near the border. One thing that is important to keep in mind is that the memory of what the Germans did, both with its long range guns and zeppelins in World War One continues over for the next 25 years. And it's one of the rationales behind the large scale strategic bombing of German cities from 1943 to 1945. Yeah. Uh, there's a sense of payback uh, that uh, many people feel like it's time the Germans got a dose of their own medicine. Next, we're going to go to Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post is a perfect introduction to the month of April as you dive right into the situation on the ground for Easter Sunday, April 2nd, 1918. What was happening on the front? Well, these are the headlines, Teo. German offensive stalls, fighting as fierce British allies outnumbered, yet hold off attackers, and a poet in the trenches special to the Great War Project. On Easter a century ago, General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force in Europe, finally agreed, reports historian Martin Gilbert, that American troops could join the British and French armies in small formations. This is well before they were numerous enough to form armies of their own. That had been a matter of sharp contention ever since the U.S. declared war on Germany more than a year previous. Observes Gilbert, this decision was a boost to Allied morale, even if it meant that the bulk of the American troops already in Europe 
and who would be arriving at a rate of 120,000 a month would not yet be in action. These are uneasy days for the Allies, writes historian Gary Mead, with both British and French commanders just one step away from panic, as the long-expected German offensive seemed to be unstoppable. It had been General Pershing's view that the morale of our troops depends upon their fighting under our own flag. Winston Churchill, British Minister of Munitions touring the front lines at this moment, telegraphs Prime Minister David Lloyd George in London, reporting on the attitude of the French politicians and generals he was consulting. It is considered certain here, Churchill wrote, that the Germans will pursue this struggle to a final decision all through the summer, and their resources are at present larger than ours. April 4th, the Germans bear down on the Allies, launching a renewed artillery bombardment, unleashed by more than 1,200 guns and sending 15 divisions against seven Allied. The Germans greatly outnumbered the Allies, even as more and more American troops begin to arrive in the frontline trenches. Also on Easter a century ago, after 12 straight days of fighting, the British push back and retake much territory they had previously lost. Then there is a lull in the fighting. After just a few days, the Germans renew their offensive. At first, reports historian Gilbert, there was panic among the British troops facing this renewed onslaught, but a combined force of British and Australian troops drives back the attackers. The next day, the German Supreme Commander calls off the offensive. Later, he writes, the final result of the day is the unpleasant fact that our offensive has come to a complete stop and its continuation without careful preparations promises no success. Among the soldiers killed that Easter Sunday a century ago is a 28-year-old poet and artist, Isaac Rosenberg. He had fought on the Western Front for nearly a year. Incredibly prolific, he had written some remarkable poetry. Here's just a tiny sampling of his work cited by Martin Gilbert. Heaped stones and a charred signboard shows with grass between and dead folk under, and some bird sings while the spirit takes wing, and this is life in France. I killed them, but they would not die. Yea, all the day and all the night, for them I could not rest or sleep, nor guard for them, nor hide in flight. And that's some of the news from the Great War Project these days a century ago. Thank you, Mike. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. This week for War in the Sky, we're turning inward to look at the psychological challenges for those daring and do warriors in the sky during World War I. Joining us is Mark Wilkins, historian, writer, museum professional, and lecturer. Mark is the author of a recently published article in the Smithsonian Air and Space Magazine called The Dark Side of Glory, an early glimpse of PTSD in the letters of World War I aces. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Mark, to start with, how did you get the trove of letters you used for your research? Well, uh, research is as you know, it's a treasure hunt. You know, so it's intuitive and sometimes information is found in the most unlikely places. That being said, there are some recent books that have collections of pilots' letters. University and National Archives are another great source, as are aviation museums or war museums like the Imperial War Museum of London. Local historical societies, sometimes relatives of the pilots. Also online newspaper and periodical archives are another fabulous source for information. So Mark, about how many letters do you think you went through to uh, start to do your research? <laughs> Too many to count. <laughs> many, 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 many letters, yes. <laughs> in World War I, malady was equated with physical issues, but your article deals with the psychological stresses of the pilot's experience. 
Last year, we were telling stories about soldiers being executed for shell shock on charges of cowardice. How did that play out for the pilots? Well, the field of aviation psychology, so-called, evolved symbiotically with the war. Psychiatrists were initially split about the causation of shell shock, for example. Some thought it was a purely physical phenomenon, whereas others thought it was psychological. And this began a debate that actually didn't conclude until around, I think, 1922. The military finally opted for the latter definition, that it was psychological, because this allowed them to either be returned to the trenches or the cockpit. And this was important because, you know, with the epic casualty tolls mounting, they really needed every man. I'm not aware of any pilot being shot for cowardice, although when cowardice was observed, the offending pilot was severely reprimanded or transferred. You have to remember, they were trying to build these guys up as basically rock stars. The trench warfare was not going well, and these guys that flew these sort of one-on-one jousting in the skies, I mean, this was something that gave the men in the trenches hope. So they didn't want their image tarnished. Many internalized the struggle. In the British squadrons, it was understood that you kept sort of a sunny disposition in front of the men, but you could privately go to pieces. Well, you know, the stress on these aces actually makes a lot of sense. If you were an ace, you flew a lot, and the mortality rate of your buddies is off the chart. You don't have, like you do in a trench, you know, you've got the courage of the guy to your left and the guy to your right to bolster you, but this is kind of a white-knuckle, cold-sweat daily solo experience. So it sounds like traumatic stress is inevitable. How common was it? Among those who talked about it, you have to remember that many didn't. It was very common. Elliot White Springs, who was an American who flew for the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps, in the 85th and 148th Squadron, basically said, it's only a question of time until we all get it. I'm all shot to pieces. My nerves are all gone and I can't stop. Few men live to know what real fear is. It's something that grows on you day by day, that eats into your constitution and undermines your sanity. Let me give you another example. Squadron leader Cecil Lewis wrote, I realized not then but later why pilots cracked up, why they lost their nerve and had to go home. Nobody could stand the strain indefinitely. Ultimately, it reduced you to a dithering state near to imbecility. They sent you home to rest. They put it in the background of your mind, but it was not like a bodily fatigue from which you could recover. It was sort of a damage to the essential tissue of your being. And never, once you had been through it, could you be quite the same again. Well, so, Mark, after immersing yourself in all of this, can you give us one example of what your biggest takeaway is from this? Um, Well, it's a complex notion. It was a bittersweet experience defying easy explanation or quantification. From Arthur Gould Lee, Lee after the war reflecting, he goes back to the Western Front and he's standing by the corner of a chateau and he says, in the sunshine by the waving grain with everything now at peace, I remembered them and was filled with a heavy sense of loneliness. I knew that although I had not been killed, something in me had. Something had gone out of me and was buried and would always be buried in a hundred cemeteries in France and in England, along with the companions of my youth who had died that our country might live. We just had a great question come in from our live audience. Frank Crone wants to know, did Richthofen, Germany's Red Baron, appear to suffer from PTSD? Uh, Yes, he did. He was a fearless pilot, but he was wounded in the head. He suffered a head wound, and after that, he changed. He became a little more cautious, a little bit more protective of his pilots. He basically realized that mortality was something that could happen to him. The problem is we can only deduce what happened based on the letters that many of these guys wrote. And Red Baron, even though he wrote an autobiography, he doesn't really talk about much of that stuff. His mother basically is the one who commented on his condition and his temperament had changed after he was wounded. Last December, we had filmmaker Derek Greer on the show about his upcoming film about the Lafayette Escadrille and doing a documentary. You're involved in that project, aren't you? That's right. I'm the producer of aerial effects and the historical consultant for the film. 
basically as the producer for aerial effects, I line up venues for shoots with the aircraft I mentioned. We did one at the Golden Age Air Museum filming replica Newport 17s and a German two-seater in simulated patrols and dogfight segments. And in addition, I've built a few large-scale, actually radio-controlled models. These will stand in for what we can't do with full-scale aircraft. And as historical consultant for the film, I'm helping out with historical big-picture aspects. And really the trick with this is to locate it within the greater framework of the war so that the viewer not only sees this particular story in great detail, but is also able to see where it fits within the big picture, you know, the major battles and political trends of the war. You've got a book coming out. Uh, can you tell us about it and when it's coming out? It's basically the article in an expanded format. It chronicles the rise of military aviation, nationalism and technology during the late 19th, 20th century, the rise of the ACE phenomenon, aviation, psychiatry, and finally includes six case studies that illustrate different ways men dealt with the psychological impact of combat flying. It'll be out in January of 2019, being published by Pen and Sword in the United Kingdom. Okay, we'll put links in the podcast notes or we'll have you back when the book comes out. Thank you for coming on the show and uh, giving us the story and the article. Well, thank you for having me. Mark Wilkins is a historian, writer, museum professional, and historical aeronautics expert. You can read his article in the Air and Space magazine and learn more about his work from the links in the podcast notes. For videos about World War I 100 years ago this week, check out our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. New episodes this week include the German armored cars in World War I and the neutral ally, Norway, in World War I. See their videos by searching for The Great War on YouTube or by following the link in the podcast notes. All right, it's time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the podcast focuses on now and how we're commemorating the centennial of World War I. For Remembering Veterans, a small village hosts a big event this weekend. The Midway Village Museum is a 137-acre living history park located near Rockford, Illinois. Now this weekend, the Victorian Village will host the 6th annual Great War event, featuring over 225 reenactors portraying soldiers and civilians from the United States and Europe. Visitors will have an opportunity to enter encampments, tour a reproduction 150-yard trench system, and watch large-scale narrated battle reenactments. It's the nation's largest public World War I reenactment event, and we'll be speaking with some of the event's organizers right here on the podcast in a couple of weeks to hear how it went. For now, and especially if you're in the region, visit the link in the podcast notes for a full list of scheduled events at Midway Village Museum near Rockford, Illinois. Also this week for Remembering Veterans, something I didn't know much about from the world of sports a century ago. Now, I've got a clear image in my mind of baseball in the era. I also see leather helmets and pigskin warriors on the football gridiron. But today we're going to be looking at another great American institution that, as it turns out, made a big splash in France during World War I. Basketball. To tell us about it, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, a historian, sports writer, consultant, and author. Her website says, Historical Insights, Communicating Globally, Sports, Diplomacy, and Storytelling. Lindsay, it sounds like you're going to fit right in here. Welcome to the podcast. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. 
Lindsay, for our non-basketball experts like me, could you start us off with a brief history of basketball? When did it first develop and how widespread was the sport in America circa 1918? Basketball was developed by a YMCA educator, James Nismith in 1891 as a result of trying to create a game for some of his older students that was not as violent at the time as, say, football was. And it was a game that had to keep their attention, keep them engaged, and be able to be played indoors. This was in Springfield, Massachusetts, which in December is rather snowy. So that's how the game originally developed. And it spread fairly quickly, including throughout the Northeast and the Midwest and further afield within the United States. Some of the early professional teams and leagues were begun in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And by around 1901, we start seeing the first colleges sponsoring basketball games. So it very quickly became integrated into the burgeoning sports scene in the United States at that time. And Basketball was very much seen as a sport that was played both for men and for women. I think that's an important distinction to note. It was seen as being very beneficial for women's health. You also have kind of this golden halo over basketball at the time. It's seen as part of these sports that help to build what they call muscular Christianity, right? Build the moral fiber of young people, young men, young women in a protected setting. Now, did Americans bring hoops to France, or were they already playing there? Well, that's a trick question that you ask. Technically, yes, the Americans brought basketball to France. A man named Melvin Rideout, who was one of James Naismith's original students in Springfield, Massachusetts, two years after the game was invented, was sent to Paris to oversee the opening of a new YMCA hostel there in the 9th arrondissement on the Rue de Trevise. And he teaches this new game of basketball to several of his French colleagues and to the young boys who were there watching. And what you have is the first basketball game played on European soil occurring there in Paris in December 1893. Fairly quick spread to France, relatively speaking. But because of its association with the YMCA, which was a Protestant-affiliated organization, there were some difficulties in some of the French openly embracing this sport. When the Americans arrive, though, in 1917, that's when they start to disassociate the game with the religious aspect. The American Expeditionary Force was playing basketball in most places where they went as part of these recreational sports. And the association with the Americans and kind of this cool factor that they seem to bring, also helping to turn the tide of the war, and the fact that all stripes of doughboys were playing basketball, regardless of background. Now, you're working on a new book about basketball in France. How popular is the sport there now? Basketball is the second most played team sport in France today, although it trails significantly behind soccer. Oh, of course. However, the NBA is very popular in France, and a lot of people watch the NBA. Basketball is increasingly a bigger cultural product in France uh, than it has been in a long time. Lindsay, why do you think it became popular? Well, one aspect that I think is really interesting is that French military adopted and integrated basketball into their training exercises in the 1920s and 1930s. So 
when you talk about how did basketball become more popularized in France as a result of the war, yes, on the one hand, it's kind of association of cool post-war American cultural world. That's a main initiator, but the French military sees it as a very good game to help rebuild the decimated bodies of lots of French youth that were implicated in the war. So it's the, it's the army and also the Catholic Church that helped to start to popularize it in the 1920s and 1930s. Lindsay, thank you for coming on the show and telling us a lot about things that probably many of us didn't know about. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff is a historian, sports writer, consultant, and author of several books. Learn more about her and her writings by following the links in the podcast notes. For 100 Cities, 100 Memorials, today, the anniversary of America's declaration of war in 1917, the final 50 awardees have been announced. Here's a section from the press release. On the eve of the 101st anniversary of the United States entering World War I, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library announced today the final 50 World War I memorials to be awarded grants and honored with the official national designation as World War I Centennial Memorials. All 100 memorials in all 100 cities have now been designated, including such national landmarks as Chicago Soldier Field, L.A.'s Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, San Francisco's War Memorial Veterans Building and Opera House, Honolulu's Natatorium, and Washington, D.C.'s National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park. In addition, many smaller local community projects are being recognized, such as Scranton, Pennsylvania's Colonel Frank Duffy Memorial Bridge and Park, Cape May, New Jersey's Soldier and Sailors Monument, Ocean Spring, Mississippi's Emil Ladner World War I Memorial, and North Carolina's North Carolina State University's Memorial Bell Tower, to name just a few. The newly designated memorials are in 37 different states, and each will receive a $2,000 matching grant towards the restoration, conservation, and maintenance of these local historical treasures. Here's John Schwann, the interim president and CEO of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library from their live stream announcement. Congratulations to all those named as official World War I Centennial Memorials, one symbolic memorial for every year of the past century. Thank you to the towns and cities across the country that took part in this program and thank all the individuals who helped pull this together so that we may never forget the sacrifices of those who served in the Great War, lest we forget. So, this is a nearly two-and-a-half-year effort to get 100 memorials designated, but it's not the end of the program. For example, we're going to continue to profile the projects on the podcast every week, and we're going to accelerate our Memorial Hunters program to identify and create a national register of World War I memorials around the nation. We're going to continue to encourage and support communities around the country to commemorate their local World War I heroes through their memorials that are all over America, a lot of them hidden in plain sight. As Dan Dayton, the executive director of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, noted in the press release, I'm impressed by the community involvement that has sprung from these projects. By focusing on restoring these community treasures, Local cities, veterans groups, historical societies, and citizens have come together to remember the community's heritage, and that's really the key goal of the program. 
See a searchable listing of all 100 cities and memorials at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Here's our weekly feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore the words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Today, when you encounter something that's exaggerated, major, melodramatic, big, huge, maybe just too much, we sometimes describe it as being over the top, which is our speaking World War I phrase this week. During World War I, as the soldiers sat in the muddy trenches in anxious anticipation, preparing to take the offensive, that dramatic moment when the whistles blew, and the men climbed up and over the berms of the trenches, rushing out into no man's land, facing enemy shells and gas and machine guns, well, that was known as, you guessed it, going over the top. At the time, it was a literal physical description of what you did, but appropriately, it remains in our lexicon today as something seriously radical. Over the top. Something you might toss off lightly about somebody or something, but a phrase with a really heavy history. And this week's phrase for speaking World War I. Check the podcast notes to learn more. This week for World War I War Tech, we turn our attention back to late March and early April of 1918. Paris is under attack as behemoth cannon shells, some weighing as much as 230 pounds, fall on the city, killing dozens, creating panic, and initially really confusing city officials. Where are the guns? The Paris guns, as they came to be known, were sitting 80 miles away, and they were responsible. This German supergun wasn't meant for the battlefield. It was specifically designed to terrorize and demoralize civilian populations. It was so massive that it could only be moved around by rail. It was created by extending a 380-millimeter naval gun barrel to a length of 112 feet. That and 550 pounds of gunpowder gave these beasts the extreme firing range. Ed Langle mentioned that en route to their target, the shells literally arced into the Earth's stratosphere 24 miles up, and up there there's almost no atmospheric drag, again increasing the range of the guns. This new weapon began its assault on Paris in late March of 1918, continuing periodically for over three months until early August. Now that Panic and fear that spread after the initial attack was really actually short-lived, and the terror weapon never proved to be much of a threat to French strategy or even to population's morale. Uh, Nevertheless, the Paris guns proved to be a domestic propaganda hit in Germany, as the ability to strike the French capital directly did a lot to stem the public's anxiety over the course of the war. The Paris gun, an engineering marvel, a terror weapon aimed at the Parisians a hundred years ago, and the subject of this week's World War I war tech. Learn more and see images of the mobile monsters at the links in the podcast notes. For articles and posts, we're going to try something new this week. Many of the new posts are featured in our weekly dispatch newsletter, so we're going to give you the highlights from the dispatch as an overview. A feature in Politico outlines how President Trump's parade this year, which looks like it's going to fall on or near Veterans Day, may have special World War I meaning. It's an interesting article and an interesting read. News about Sergeant Stubby, a follow-up on the film's recent premiere, 
a street fair honoring the pup in his hometown of Hartford, Connecticut, and a new Sergeant Stubby statue planned for Middletown, Connecticut. Test yourself and your World War I knowledge by taking a quiz from the National Archives. Check out a new illustrated battlefield travel guide. Read a bittersweet story about Easter of 1918. A new exhibition highlights Anglo-American relations during the war, and it's on view in Bath, England. Doughboy MIA features Private Edwin C. Kitterman of New Middleton, Indiana. And this week's featured story of service is that of Private Wayne Minor, an Illinois native who was killed in action just three hours before the armistice. Sign up for the weekly dispatch newsletter at www.cc.org/subscribe. Check the archive at www.cc.org/dispatch or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that's articles and posts for this week. Which brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War One this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what did you pick? Hi, Teo. Really interesting article popped up on Facebook this week about ordinance from World War I that continues to surface and pose a real threat, but not in Europe, right here on the east coast of the United States. Listeners might be familiar with the Zone Rouge, a 460-square-mile area of France centered around Verdun that's been determined to be too physically and environmentally damaged for human habitation as a direct result of the Great War. There's even an entire department in France, the Département de Déminage, or the Department of De-Mining, that's been tasked with safely disposing of ordnance from the World Wars. Since its establishment in 1946, more than 630 members of that force have been killed in the line of duty. We have no such force here in the U.S., so when seven rifle grenades from World War I were discovered recently on the coast of New Jersey, explosives experts had to be called in to safely dispose of the munitions. So how did these grenades end up in New Jersey? It turns out disposing of unneeded munitions by dumping them into the sea was a commonplace practice as recently as 1970. As a result, there are an estimated millions of tons of potentially explosive ordnance on the seafloor, and every once in a while, some makes its way onto shore. You can read more about the Zone Rouge and the intermittent discovery of World War weapons on American shores by visiting the links in the podcast notes. And that's it for this week in the buzz. And that's the first week of April for World War I Centennial News. Thank you for listening. We also want to thank our guests, Dr. Edward Lengel, military historian and author. Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog. Mark Wilkins, historian, writer, museum professional, and lecturer. Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff, historian, sports writer, consultant, and author. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and the line producer for the podcast. A shout out to our intern, John Moriali, for his great research assistance. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And of course, we're building America's national World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. 
We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as the Star Foundation for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, or search WW1 Centennial News on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Podbean, Stitcher Radio On Demand, Spotify, or use your smart speaker. Just say, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you for joining us, and don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. Oh, say, let us fly, dear. Where, kid? To the sky, dear. Oh, you flying machine. Jump in Miss Josephine. Up, up, a little bit higher. Oh, my, the moon is You know, that ginormous cannon that was shooting at Paris that they talked about? Oh man, that was really over the top. (laughs) So long.